I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. You don't want to miss the podcast next week. We are going to be at the Labour Party Conference, Monday, Tuesday next week. And then the following week, obviously, with the Tory Party Conference. Uh, so we'll have all of the backstage, behind-the-scenes news and analysis and uh, Probably the egg and spoon race as well. Right, coming up on today's episode, how'd you be Deputy Prime Minister? Therese Coffey. She's the Health Secretary as well. She's making a big announcement on the NHS. But he's also Deputy PM. But everybody does it does it slightly differently. So coming up, really nice dive into the Red Box podcast archive, plus some new interviews. So you are going to hear from Michael Heseltine, Nick Clegg, Peter Manson, Damien Green, David Livington. How do you do the job? And it seems to be different for everyone. Uh, so that's coming up in our big thing at the moment. Before that, though, it's our columnist panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, we're talking about uh, deputy, deputising and standing in because of Therese Coffey being the Deputy Prime Minister. And we've got, as if we planned it, we've got a stand-in. Uh, Patrick Kidd, you are Therese Coffey to India Knight's Liz Truss. Gosh. <laughs> but yes, so I'm, I'm the, the, the fat drinker. You know? <laughs> Your words, not mine. Your I'm words, always, not mine. always the bridesmaid on this show. I always, know, but... I know, but it's nice. You're the super sub. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just reminded that um, you watch the West Wing, I'm sure. Yeah, and, and Bingo Bob, the, the vice president, has the, the spiel in that where he says that if you screw up your eyes and turn your head sideways and look at the seal of the vice president of the United States, it looks like it says president of the United <laughs> States. <laughs> I mean, I'm the, I actually, I, 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 West Wing's all right. I, I didn't really get into it, but Veep is absolutely terrific and is all about the vice president. Yes. Being a total, I mean, you're the second most powerful person in America and yet completely absurd. And you just get sent to all the second best things. Nobody takes any notice of you. It's terrific. You're a heartbeat away from being the most powerful person on, yeah. the, on, the, on the planet, but actually, apart from that heartbeat, you have no power at all. No, absolutely no power at all. Uh, James Marriott, how are you? I'm well. How are you? Have you ever been a stand-in, a deputy? I've been a stand-in. Well, I spent I spent a few years as a deputy books editor. But oh I mean, yeah, you did. Um, and I, I mean, I, I did. My boss went on holiday very early in that job, and I, I experienced being the actual books editor for a week with utter terror, um, <laughs> having never ever worked in a newspaper. I think about two weeks into the job, I was suddenly editing many many pages of a newspaper, and uh, yeah, I was filled with. It was fine in the end. I'm, I'm still here, but it was extremely terrifying. I thought um, I thought if you were deputising for Robbie as his books editor, you just sort of sat around all day looking at the internet and gossiping about people. I, well, he's, it's his flair, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I didn't have the flair. Maybe I could maybe I could pull it off now. Um, yeah. Well, let's talk about um, your column today, James. It's nice this. I um, many because I can understand it. <laughs> 
this sort of so it's about how people now judge their stress and anxiety in their life as a sort of status symbol everyone's got to have anxiety everyone's got to you know have imposter syndrome whatever it might be to the point that you know it's become like a yet another cottage industry particularly over there in the city yeah i i think it's i mean i'm kind of i have a sort of minor obsession with stories of people who are earning vast amounts of money and yet are incredibly unhappy. And it's been a real theme for a few years now, these endless stories about bankers and lawyers in the city who are earning. You can start as a city lawyer in London on more than £150,000. That's quite easy now. But these jobs kind of really take their um, really take their pound of flesh from you. They take a bit of your soul. So this phenomenon of people who are working incredibly hard to earn vast amounts of money, I think, I think is fascinating. And I think a really interesting cultural shift in the way that we think about people right at the top of society is that once, you know, a mark of being uh, at the top of society was a certain kind of louche, you know, you had a lot of leisure time, you went shooting on your grouse more, and now I think it's completely flipped and a, a mark of status is how incredibly stressed you are. And I think people are very stressed. They also like to project the idea that they're stressed. And I think this probably has all kinds of, as I say in the column, kind of negative implications for the way that perhaps our country is run and the way the people at the top of it feel they have to act. Well, it's, it's sort of all those, the profiles, what do they call it, uh, a day in the life in the back of the Sunday Times magazine, which is always, you know, the, the high-powered people are always, they get up at 3am. Yeah, and they drink their, check their green emails smoothie and, and exactly. they go to the gym. And it's, yeah, it's completely hideous. But uh, <laughs> I had, I, there, was so, there was so much stuff I wanted to fit in the column because I was reading about... Um, some of the uh, routines of British prime ministers uh, in the in the days when British when the job of British prime minister could be done in a, in a more relaxed way, and all these superb stories about Alf, Arthur Balfour, who was um, prime minister at the end of the nineteenth century, who got up at midday, and at one point the editor of the Times had to go and personally reprimand him for never reading the newspaper. And he said, <laughs> "You're the prime minister; you absolutely have to read a newspaper." And he just read detective novels in the bath. That's amazing! Isn't that wonderful? Well, it's you. <laughs> It's basically you. You are you are the Arthur Balfour of the time. Is that Harold McMillan tucking himself up with a trollop? <laughs> and would read Jane Austen regularly, go through the entire, well, it's only seven books, but go through it every couple of years. He'd read everything by her. And... I must admit, because I always thought, when people used to go on about David Cameron chillaxing, I remember thinking, it's not, that's not a bad thing. Yeah, it, I don't it, think no. being constantly stressed means that you're necessarily yeah, doing Gordon your Brown job correctly. Gordon Brown was up at like 4am firing off emails and firing off mobile phones at people. And all. I think that's a good way to carry on. But I'm, I'm not sure whether the chillaxing wasn't itself manufactured by Cameron. Yeah, and yeah. He, so I, I once spoke to his history teacher at Eton and, and asked what the young Cameron and the young Johnson had been like. And Johnson, he said, was always a intelligent but lazy. Was what the teacher, Cameron, he said, was the hardest working pupil he'd ever had and would ask for a reading list and then ask for more reading lists and... And said Cameron got into Oxford on the back of work and Boris breezed in and that's why Cameron got a first. So I think the whole chillaxing, yeah, it was yeah. almost like, I don't want people to say I'm working hard. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, quasi quarting's a bit like that. So he's clearly bright because he's got a double first, but it's it has to be seen to be effortless. That's still quite an Etonian thing, isn't it? I think that sort of ostentatious... But then relaxed. But the point that you sort of making your comment—that's quite an old-fashioned yeah. approach. Yes. They're sort of out of step with the. But now they don't yeah. believe that they actually belong in that pinnacle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if if you suffer from imposter complex, you have to actually make it look like you're worked off your backside. Yeah, because it's a kind of a mark that you've kind of made it off your own back, isn't it? If you're really stressed, you've worked really hard. You deserve to be at the top because you've worked really, really hard to get there. Whereas well, if you're kind of breezing around, as if you're born to it. But, you're, but you, and the point that you'll make is that the people who spend. You know, they, 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 because being very stressed and anxious is a sort of status symbol of how important and successful you are, therefore you have to, everyone has to have a, 
have a counsellor or a, or a guru or, you know, students want to go to the Harvard of it. Everything's going to yeah, be the yeah, best yeah. and the most intensive. And, it, and Yeah, and I was also saying, I think it's quite, it's quite shallow and there's really interesting stuff if you... There's all this fascinating stuff I've been reading about declining research productivity in science, declining scientific breakthroughs. And a lot of scientists will complain that it's this kind of attitude that spoils all that. And if you're working in a huge university lab... It's not everyone desperately trying to advance science and collaborating. It's people ambitiously hiving off their own little, you know, <laughs> I study this molecule and no one else can touch this molecule because it's my career. Yeah. And this just kind of slows everything down because everyone's chasing their own little corners and their own little bits of territory and their own little prizes in this sort of angsty, quite kind of narrowly ambitious way and a more kind of relaxed, you know, collaborative thing in science. A lot of people say it's kind of disappeared and is a real is a real problem. It's just one of those interesting instances. I think suffering from information overload is also part yeah. of it. You're looking at your phone the whole yeah. time. I mean, I'm only on Twitter, I'm not on Facebook or Instagram, but, you know, I would love to give up Twitter and just not have to look at it and read. But... Well, James did. He was on I miss it last it. week. I really miss it wise. now. <laughs> no, but you're back. I, well, I, I can't... I can't I've, li- I've kind of blocked myself from it in various ways. I miss it. I'm, I feel a bit lonely and weird not being on Twitter. It's not as good as it seems. But actually, you know, small moments of pleasure for me, like doing the Times crossword or something yeah, yeah. like that, or when I drop my, my son at school, just popping into church for 10 minutes, just quiet. Yeah. Not to to serve, just to sit there and... And then actually, I was looking um, this morning, the, the reading of the day was from Ecclesiasticus, Vanities, Vanities, All is Vanities, which basically says, what's the gain for man in toiling so long? Yeah. You know, the, the rivers will still flow, the earth will still be there, you know, chill out. Chill out. Yeah. The Bible and the James Marrick column. Uh, very similar. <laughs> speaking with, very speaking with similar. one. <laughs> I could be Deputy Archbishop of Canterbury. Just, yeah. Just stand in occasionally. Just stand in occasionally. For I would. For doing I'd... the less good, less good services. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I vote Patrick for Archbishop. I could You'd see make it. an excellent artist. I think it'd be so good. Because actually, just to worry, I'm sure he has other... He's not the best. He, I could do the readings. The bit. readings, exactly. You'd be very good at doing the readings. He could do the theology. I think you'd do a mean sermon as well. But yeah. I'm also I'm holding out for James Bond. For you see, the Telegraph today said they're looking for a more sensitive James Bond. I thought, I could, as long as I don't have to run. Yeah. We will take it in a new direction. <laughs> I will be James Bond without the running. I'll just have long lunches. <laughs> <laughs> just a bit of light poisoning over lunch. That yeah. Would, yeah, 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 yeah. A little shoot car chase or something, a bit of gambling. But, yeah, yeah, but no running. No. I fine. so want to see that. I really I want to watch this. <laughs> Oh dear, we're talking about lunch. Let's talk about food. Um, uh, just says here, James, I love pot noodles. I do. Yeah, and I... I Student. I, 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 I slightly... Um, this has been a kind of long-standing column I do in the back, in the back of my head, um, just to have a good pretentious food culture and its total dominance that, like, it's a really bad thing now not to cook and you can... This, this yeah, chef yeah. in The Times is really complaining that it's awful that the people on his television show can't cook. And I just think it's not that big of a moral failing like it's fine not to be able to cook i just think people got really obsessed with sort of food i think another it's another status symbol i think it's fine just have just have pasta and be happy just have pot noodles and be happy heat up a pizza in your oven i've had a pot noodle for years they're really they're actually i had one quite recently and they are really nice they're kind of famous for a reason yeah I do agree with Joe. There's so many of these insufferably smug programmes, and especially the celebrity versions are even worse, or celebrity masters, yeah, yeah, celebrity yeah. bake-off. They all produce these concoctions that look wonderful. And yet I think baked beans on toast yeah. is just jolly nice. So there's this new program, but the reason we're talking about this, Giorgio Locatelli is hosting a programme in which he gets people who stretch the definition of celebrity <laughs> to, to be rubbish at cooking. <laughs> uh, and there's someone, someone puts their rice crispers in the microwave or something like that. And that can be entertaining is, how is this point. different? How is this different to Celebrity MasterChef? Is it just on a different channel? 
Yeah, but right, but, but but they're not producing masterpieces. Oh, okay, they fine. really are rubbish. Okay, fine. But I really hope throughout this series they don't grow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That at the end of it, they they're still struggling. To <laughs> <There's no laughs> Last episode, still like the, the oven is on fire. Yes. <laughs> I quite like. I mean, we talked about this before. My hobby is basically food. I love eating. But we know what's going to happen. They're going to come to the end. They will have been rubbish at the start, and then yeah. they'll suddenly do roast swan or something, and it will. <laughs> Yeah, couple, be very just a couple of weeks ago, it was a surprise birthday treat. We went to Lime Regis, and we, there's a restaurant we were trying to get into for ages. Like a, it's a like a fight, like a taster menu. So you just turn up and have whatever you got, whatever you want. And uh, it wasn't cheap, if I'm honest. One course was a deep fried stinging nettle leaf with some gubbins oh, on God, top. So, Jesus, do you know it was so good? It was <laughs> that so can't be good. good. That just it was delicious. You've been brainwashed. It was by all the, the gubbins people. on top. It was all the pickled business on the top. I'm, I'm very skeptical. I'm very skeptical. My, my news... I would offer to take you, but I'd be bankrupt. <laughs> <laughs> um, my, my new innovation, speaking of beans on toast, is um, I started making exciting beans on toast. So you like fry an onion and then add your beans on toast. And I've started kind of making it. I chopped pickled I onions into bit, my beans. A little bit gourmet. I added there red wine almost, to the There is almost nothing which cannot be improved by putting pickled onions in it. Yeah. Even a bag of crisps. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's true. Yeah, well, you know, for instance, if I had next where to no have time, you, where have you put a pickled onion? Test <laughs> <laughs> boil some pasta, put some ketchup onto it, grate lots of cheese, chop pickled onions, and then get a bag of prawn cocktail crisps, crush it, and brilliant. Brilliant. Wow. Take that, Locatelli. <laughs> <laughs> Tell you what, if you started doing that, uh, Patrick, never mind you being on Twitter, you would fly on TikTok. <laughs> Patrick's very basic cooking. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. definitely but, I mean, I can cook properly, but sometimes you just can't. Sometimes you don't want to be bothered to. Yeah. Last night, actually, um, uh, my wife was out, and so I phoned her and said, "What am I supposed to be doing for tea?" And she said, "Oh, a stew." But I should have told you that two hours ago. So never stew. Not to have a bit of pasta, bit of chorizo, tin of tomatoes, wallop. Perfect. Lovely. That's cooking. We haven't even. I haven't even mentioned you eating pasta in the bath. I think that's a, I think that's growth for this for yeah. this, this show. Louise says hearing about stress, anxiety, imposter syndrome, toxic families makes me feel incredibly boring because I have none of those things. Is that I'm simply happy? Perhaps am oh, I gosh. weird? No, Louise, I agree with you. I'm the same. Then this isn't a proper job, is it? <laughs> How can I be anxious about this? <laughs> anyway, it's lovely to see you both. I'll let you both get off and have your pot noodles and your whatever pickled onion. Patrick Kidd and James Marriott then. Of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox. Up next, how'd you be Deputy PM? Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. So Therese Coffey making her big debut as Deputy Prime Minister today and Health Secretary appearing at the dispatch box to make a series of announcements about what she's going to do about access to GPs and doctors and dentists and all of that. But she's got quite a lot of her play as Deputy Prime Minister as well. So what does it take to be the country's second in command? Every Prime Minister needs a willy. That was Margaret Thatcher's famous quote, extolling the virtues of her deputy, Willie Whitelaw. But he wasn't really her deputy. At least he wasn't given the title of Deputy Prime Minister. In fact, there have only ever been five people to officially hold that title. Others have been variously called First Secretary of State, Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, and the journalistic cliche of de facto deputy, or worse, Deputy PM in all but name. Well, Therese Coffey's got the title, as well as being Health Secretary too, and she's the first woman to be Deputy PM in name or anything else. But how do you do it? Is it possible to do huge, two big, big jobs like that? Well, in this half hour, we're going to hear from as many people as we can who've been there and done the job before, including digging into my archives to hear from the likes of Nick Clegg, who had the title, and Peter Mandelson, who didn't, but was very much Gordon Brown's wingman. But first, Michael Hesseltine, the first person to be officially labelled as Deputy Prime Minister, uh, working under John Major from 1995 to the end of the Tory government in 1997. Here he is speaking to the Institute for Government, explaining his approach to the job. The job of Deputy Prime Minister is very much what you want to make of it. And it can vary from the extremes. One extreme being that you're the, uh, the, the, the king in waiting. The other is that you are the shadow of the existing Prime Minister there to enjoy the authority that comes from that deputy position to implement his or her policies and to do, frankly, what can often be sophisticated troubleshooting. The role that I saw myself doing was very much working as the shadow of John Major. I was determined there wouldn't be a glimmer of light between us. And I think that's where I got the authority from, that everybody knew that if I turned up and said, this is what I want to see, I would have already established that John Major wanted that to be the policy. Um, If there had been any doubt uh, in anyone's mind that I spoke with his authority, within a very short period of time, it would have been all over the press. And secondly, people would have known that there would be a route of appeal from what I said straight to the Prime Minister. And John never was involved in countermanding anything that I did or even giving a glimmer that he was in disagreement. The first simple reason that I wouldn't do anything unless I knew we had a secured agreement between us. And in that way, I was able to help him with usually troubleshooting things that blew up, events, dear boy, events, the old (laughs) rocks of politics. That's often where the Deputy Prime Minister finds a lot of his time. Michael Hesseldine speaking to the Institute for Government. Well, in 1997, John Prescott became the second person to officially hold the title of Deputy PM. But as he'd been elected as Deputy Leader of the Labour Party, he had his own power base. But he still needed Tony Blair to actually give him the Deputy PM title. Well, Labour's Joe Irvin was his special advisor between 1996, in opposition, and 2001. And he told me there were four things that defined the job for him. 
So you kind of four things you have to do. Your job is to represent the prime minister when they can't be in two places at once, attending international conferences, sometimes PMQ, sometimes sharing the cabinet, uh, covering for illness. And what John did, which I don't know the others have done, is he was what he called looked after the shop in the summer when Tony Blair was on holiday. So he actually was in Downing Street. So probably the worst thing for me working for him is you never got a summer holiday. Secondly, I think giving honest advice. So I think it's really dangerous in politics to surround yourself with yes men and women. But uh, John brought, he, you know, he was complimentary to Tony Blair. He was certainly not like Tony Blair, was he? So he brought his own hinterland. He had his own connections in the party. He, he never really described himself as New Labour, but he was very supportive. The third thing, though, is, is loyalty. And so you disagree with your prime minister in private, but you defend them to the hilt in public. And John actually was very good at doing that. And Tony Blair really appreciated it. And then the final fourth thing is being the fixer, ironing out differences, sorting out things that the prime minister then doesn't need to get involved in, uh, knocking heads together and adjudicating between different departments. Uh, Otherwise, you would end up with all these sort of things bubbling up and ending, escalating to the prime minister having to deal with them when they've got bigger fish to fry. Uh, was it always going to be the case that if New Labour got into power, he as deputy leader would definitely become deputy prime minister? Or was that a conversation that had to be had? No, it was a conversation that had to be had and was had and wasn't confirmed till the morning of the election. Because I walked in to Downing Street with John Prescott on the 1st of May 1997. He was the first one invited in, uh, which was a good sign from that point of view. And uh, there were those in government who probably weren't very comfortable with that, but they confirmed that he would be Deputy Prime Minister and that his department would be Department of Environment, Transport and Regions at the same time. Now, that's an enormous department. In fact, it's such a big department. It's now three departments. How do you combine being Deputy Prime Minister to Tony Blair alongside running what is a massive department? Actually, a bit similar to Therese Coffey, Deputy Prime Minister to Liz Truss, but running the Department of Health in itself a very big department. How do you how do you go about sort of doing both of those pretty big jobs well? John was a, a prodigious worker, so he worked really, really hard on long hours. So that was part of it. And the second thing is that within his department, he had ministers who he had to delegate to and other people to help him. We had a great civil service. I was there as a special advisor on the political side, along with a couple of other people. So he had a big department, but he had ministers to help run it. So he had to, he could administer it. But the deputy prime minister stuff was mainly done in discussions with Tony Blair and sometimes other ministers, such as Gordon Brown and Tony Blair. They'd have three-way meetings, um, or there was a particular tricky issue that Tony wanted him involved in. Um, but most of it was actually conducted through cabinet committees, which are very little, they're kind of slightly secretive. Uh, but the cabinet committees is where a lot of things get sorted out. Tony Blair, as prime minister, as Gordon Brown found as well, you get massive things suddenly lumped on you. The Northern Ireland peace process being, you know, an example, which are all absorbing. You can't, you can't just toy around with it. So you need somebody you can rely on who can fix things. So John would be there to, to in cabinet committees very often to iron out differences, if necessary, knock heads together and adjudicate. Um, you can only do that if you carry the authority to do that. And that means you've got the authority of the Prime Minister, so nobody thinks, oh, I can go behind your back and go back to the, the Prime Minister and sort that out. But John also had his own authority, because he's unlike all of the others, he's elected by the party as deputy leader, which gave him his own authority. 
He was also, he had a big department and that gave him some authority. And thirdly, he was a kind of a big beast character politician as well. Yeah, it's interesting that because of where he'd come from, both being directly elected, but also the, sort of the wing of the party and the tradition of the party, he carried something with him mm. in and of himself rather than it just being a sort of title. When you think about John in his sort of role as Deputy Prime Minister, is there a funny story you think of or a particularly exciting thing you got to do? So at one point, we were out doing the Kyoto negotiations on climate change and uh, the Japanese Prime Minister fell ill and in the constitutional first, there was a new prime minister appointed and there was a kind of some pressure on Tony Blair to go out there and meet him. So John was out there. He was asked, could he, in, in addition to the environmental stuff, go and see the new uh, prime minister of Japan? John found out he actually was interested in rugby. So he, he, he got somebody to organise and we organised a whole Kingston Rovers shirt to give to the new prime minister of Japan, who we'd not met. The Foreign Office were absolutely appalled. <laughs> you can't be doing this, all sorts of reasons. There's a sponsorship on the front, it'll be offended. John kind of took this in his stride because he had that authority, he carried on doing it. We went and met the Deputy Prime Minister and as we walked in, there was a little model of a rugby player in a red and white hoop shirt, which are the Japanese colours. So John knew he was bang in there. <laughs> Presented it, was delighted. Joe Irving there, a former special advisor to John Prescott when he was Deputy Prime Minister. So we've heard about Michael Heseltine and then uh, John Prescott. But in 2007, Gordon Brown notably refused to make Harriet Harman his Deputy PM, despite her being elected Labour's Deputy Leader. Instead, a couple of years later, Peter Mandelson took the title of First Secretary of State for a year from 2009, trying to keep his former great rival in a job. As Peter Mandelson told me earlier this year. Probably the most challenging were when I was, as it were, the political anchor man uh, for Gordon Brown after he'd brought me back um, to government and I effectively became uh, his number two, certainly, you know, his main uh, shield and defender, which quite a lot of my colleagues in the cabinet criticised me for. They said I shouldn't have been out there defending Gordon because of course in many cases they wanted they felt his time had come and they wanted somebody to replace him with whom to fight the coming election well I didn't see it as my job to bury Gordon Brown I saw it as my job to help him and 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 support him but he would get into these terrible scrapes and and then when odd members of the cabinet would sort of resign suddenly in the middle of the night <laughs> or through some announcement to the 10 o'clock news or to a newspaper um, uh, I would be the one who would go on and calm everyone down and push back and let the world know that everything was continuing uh, as normal and the ship would continue sailing forwards I remember a particularly feisty interview with Andrew Marr uh, one Sunday after a particularly difficult week. I think we'd lost two or three cabinet members. Um, they'd either gone or threatened to go or brief that they were going. I can't remember. And I knew I was on a very sticky wicket. And I just judged that the only way <laughs> to uh, survive and to push back was to become, you know, quite aggressive. And I started interviewing Andrew um, and push, putting him onto the back foot and hoping that in one way or another, I'd get through to the end intact, which I did. 
Peter Mandelson there. Well, then in 2010, of course, Nick Clegg became Deputy Prime Minister. A very different uh, job to anyone who'd gone before because he was the Deputy uh, Prime Minister, leader of the smallest party in the coalition government. Well, speak to me after the 2015 general election in which the Lib Dems suffered heavy losses. He told me that playing second fiddle in a coalition was an almost impossible task. The difficulty, I think, for future participants or students of coalition is that if you look at not just our coalition, but at coalitions across Europe and elsewhere, I'm afraid it's the same pattern over and over again. The smaller party, particularly if it's a sort of a smaller party from the progressive wing, going into coalition with a party on the centre-right, time and time again, cops all the blame for the bad stuff, gets no credit for the good stuff. And, and so we've got a real, you know, we've got a real sort of challenge because I think coalition politics will return in sh- some shape or form. But it can't, it can't work if, unfortunately it seems to be the case, not just in Britain, but in other systems where coalition have occurred, if it results in a kind of act of Harry Kiri, noble or otherwise, by the smaller party. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote a whole sort of... In, in, in the Netherlands, I actually entitled my chapter this. In the Netherlands, they call it Burgemeester in Orlok, which means literally mayor in wartime. And, and they say smaller parties in the Netherlands go into coalition. And like a mayor, a Dutch mayor who's trying to do the best for his or her community during Nazi occupation, they'll always be condemned as being traitors for kind of staying in post, even though they're trying to do the best that they can. I'm not (laughs) trying to uh, make any parallel between the Conservative Party and and Nazi occupation. But you know what I mean? (laughs) Of course not. But, you know... it's an interesting phraseology that they just they, they understand how invidious it is for a smaller party in coalition. Nick Clegg there. And actually, Nick Clegg did consider taking a big department. I think it was the Department for Education, uh, as well as being Deputy Prime Minister, but decided actually to rise above it and just have the office of Deputy uh, Prime Minister. Well, the, the DPM title then fell into abeyance in 2016. But Theresa May had two unofficial deputies. Damien Green was described as First Secretary of State and de facto Deputy. I asked him if Theresa May had actually explained exactly what the job was, used those terms when she offered him the gig. Pretty much. I don't think think she used the actual phrase, but, yes, she said, you will be my deputy. Um, And Obviously, I chaired a lot of the cabinet committees and stood in for her prime minister's questions when she wasn't around. So, so yes, it, it it was pretty clear that that was the job. And how did you approach it? Do you basically end up having to pick up all of the sort of one degree less important things? Or were there particular areas she delegated to you? How did you envisage your place within the government? It's, I mean, it differs for, for every deputy, which is one of the, the interesting things about the, the, the current appointment. I mean, for me, it, it was perfectly clear that a large amount of Theresa's time would be taken up with Brexit. And so therefore... What the division of labour was that most of the domestic, almost all of the domestic cabinet committees, so things dealing with you know, crucial stuff like home affairs and pensions and, and so on, um, I would chair those cabinet committees, many of which would normally be chaired by the prime minister. So, uh, yes, I mean, she, you know, so she picked what she wanted to concentrate on, though, in a sense, circumstances always dictate that. Uh, and I would pick up the rest to give her the, the bandwidth to do what, what was necessary. And how do you make sure that you've got the sort of authority and clout across government? Well, well you have to be given that authority and and exercise it. And so at no stage when I was doing the job did I ever get countermanded. If I said, OK, we're going to do this, we did it. 
And you know, I had that conversation explicitly with, with people around Teresa saying, look, if she ever decides that what I've decided is wrong, even if she disagrees with me, then that, that makes that role pointless. And, and, and everyone got that straight away. And what about that role of standing in it, 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 Prime Minister's questions? Daunting enough if you're the actual Prime Minister. How do you pr- how do you approach it if you're the deputy? Oh, with with terror, uh, and but but also anticipation. It's it's sort of one of the things that um, you know young political nerds dream about in the bath. We're doing that one day, so actually doing it uh, is is a sort of achievement in itself. But yes, it's pretty terrifying. You and, and you are never better informed about the world than you are when you've done several days preparation for Prime Minister's questions. But um, but the, you know, the theatre of it, you, you either enjoy or you don't. I did quite enjoy it. Um, uh, and, and if you don't enjoy it, you probably wouldn't do it. You certainly wouldn't do it more than once. Damien Green there. And Damien Green was forced to resign. He was replaced by David Liddington. Although, slightly confusingly, Liddington was never actually given the first Secretary of State title. But it meant that anyone called him de facto deputy anyway. I asked him what that meant, doing that job, and whether Theresa May ever used the term with him. No, she, she, she never used that. I mean, when, I, when I remember being called into Downing Street um, to see her, and she sort of offered me this, this role. And, and I, I remember I was, I was slightly confused. I was, she, she said, like, if you chance the Duchy of Lancaster, Minister for the Cabinet Office. And I did actually check, you know, is this the number two position because it wasn't immediately clear to me, although I knew I was replacing Damien Green, who who had resigned from the government. I mean, not having the DPM title did mean that it took me probably a month to two months to just get the message through to Whitehall that I did have the Prime Minister's confidence and I did and should be treated as having the authority of her number two. I'm, I'm really pleased, I think, that, uh, that, that Therese Coffey has got the Deputy Prime Minister title, because I think that sends an instant message to the entire civil service right across the government. Okay, this is the person with delegated authority from the Prime Minister to act on her behalf, to take things off the PM's desk that the PM doesn't have time to deal with personally. And, and, and it just it does just will help to, um, to, 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 to avoid having to go through this sort of learning process. It took, took me a few weeks before that was accepted by my colleagues in, in government and by the civil service. But we got there in the end, and I, I, I never had any, any real difficulties there. Clearly, your role was as a sort of coordinator across governments, whereas Therese Coffey's got a massive government department as the uh, Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. Is it possible to do both jobs? I mean, that would be my, my big question. Health and social care is one of the top political issues. And I'd have thought it's a pretty all-consuming job. Now, I think that to do the deputy PM job effectively as well, she's clearly going to have to delegate a lot to her junior ministers within the Department for Health and Social Care. And I, I just hope that you know, she has sort of worked out how to do this. And also the PM has worked out a way in which to manage this. My understanding is that Therese Coffey will have an office in number 10 permanently. And while Liz is there, and that she she will um, you know, be taking part in into PM PM meetings. Um, one of the interesting questions will be whether Therese Coffey, as Deputy PM, will be asked to chair a number of the cabinet committee meetings or task forces to drive through the implementation of the Prime Minister's policy priorities. I mean, that will be a very interesting test of whether she's given delegated authority to act, then also how, of how she tries to do this alongside what will be a very demanding Secretary of State job. 
I mean, you did chair lots of those committees, but I suppose part yeah. of that, that job was to make sure that the Home Office was speaking to the Department for Health, which was speaking to the Ministry of Justice, which was speaking to the Department of Transport. Is it possible to both chair those committees and be on it, if you like? If she's chairing cabinet committees, then I think one of the ministers of state at Department of Health is going to have to fill the health seat at those committees where they are involved. I don't think she can easily both chair the whole bereing between different interests in Whitehall and at the same time represent her own department's interests fully. So that certainly is one of the tests as as to how, how well this works. It's worth saying, though, that that the Cabinet Office, which is the department that's there to back the implementation and the coordination of policy right across government, has some very able ministers running it. I mean, both Nadim Zahawi as Chancellor Duchess of Lancaster, my old job title, and uh, Ed Agar as Paymaster General have got a really good track record in getting things done in the previous offices they've held. Do you get any perks for being de facto Deputy Prime Minister, or do you just get to go and do all the jobs the Prime Minister doesn't fancy? <laughs> uh, you sometimes get in, would get invited to, you know, some some concerts, or you know, I, 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 you get so you do if you're senior minister. So and the deputy, even if you're just just a de facto deputy, does get this. Is you you can get a, a government aircraft you get that but actually no Matt it was you know more likely I was to say I was both the minister for spinning plates and the minister for hospital passes when I have the number two job because whenever the headlines looked like, like the absolutely catastrophic for Theresa May's government I'd get this phone call from Robbie Gibb who was running the government media side and say so David um might you be free to do the the morning media round tomorrow you know please go on and be shouted at by Piers Morgan for five minutes or something like that and there was even talk at one point about you becoming a caretaker PM uh, when at various points, it seems a long time ago now, and all the Brexit stuff yeah. was, was all unfolding. Being number two, did it give you ambitions for, for, for the top job? <laughs> I know it was talked about, I know, for a, for a brief period of time. I, I never thought that it was going to happen because I couldn't see Theresa walking away. Um, but actually, the closer you get to number 10, the more you see the downside of that role. I mean, Prime Minister is an utterly backbreaking job. I mean, there's a very unfair comment at the moment saying Liz Truss is looking tired. Well, frankly, anybody who becomes Prime Minister ages at a rate of not. So look at the photographs on day one and the photographs when the day eventually comes when he or she leaves office. And you see how they've aged in that 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 period of time. You, know, you, you and, and There's a lot there in the top job certainly pm but also you know therese coffee will have this as deputy pm that that isn't seen that that um there will be security briefings um that the deputy will sometimes have to cover for the prime minister the prime minister is uh, away on a foreign summit or even an occasional holiday break um and it's you then as deputy that are the first point of call if there were to be a a terrorist threat, or there were to be fears of a 9-11 style incident, the hijacked aircraft, and, and the consciousness of being on duty, the, the, the awareness that the next phone call could just be something that that you know, leaves you with the biggest decision you'll ever have to make in your life, um, is pretty salutary. David Liddington there on uh, why being deputy to Theresa May didn't make him want to have the top job. Well, in 2019, Boris Johnson made Dominic Raab his first Secretary of State. And he really did have to deputise, of course, standing in for the Prime Minister while he was in hospital being treated for COVID. But he only got the official title of Deputy Prime Minister when he was demoted from being Foreign Secretary 
for the shambles of the Afghan evacuation. The sea was actually closed. And so, too, to ease coffee. Not elected by the membership, not a power-sharing partner, not a former rival brought back in an hour of need. In fact, her key qualification for being Deputy PM is she's Liz Truss's closest friend in politics. And over the next few months, she could probably do with that. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? <laughs>